We'll open, if you would, to Exodus chapter 32. We're done with the instructions for the tabernacle for now. In a few weeks or maybe a few months, we will be back to telling how the tabernacle was built. But that regularly scheduled programming is interrupted by the recount of the golden calf. God reminds us that even the golden calf can't stop his plan to dwell in the midst of his people. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together against Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that will go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast. To Yahweh. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would write this story on our hearts as a reminder to us of who we are as your people. Don't let us fall for the golden calf, Father. Help me to preach powerfully and faithfully to your saints. Let us all beware of idolatry. Help us to counteract false worship with true worship. Let your church, your spirit, your people be enough of your presence for us so that we won't desire or want a God we can see to go before us. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, obviously, a sermon on the golden calf will be largely negative in tone and content. I have to mention before I get going that I took this title from Phil Riken's sermons on Exodus. This title is too good. I did not come up with this on my own. Unholy cow. But the sermon is going to be negative in tone and content. To put it in a, in a very blatant way, my goal is to preach Christ by preaching Antichrist. To show us the true God by talking about the golden calf, the anti-ark, the anti-tabernacle. The ugly idol highlights the beauty of Christ. God is not with us in a calf, golden or otherwise. He's with us in a man, in his son. So the way Israel made the golden calf warns us against idolatry, warns us against false theology, and warns us against false worship. The story is told quickly, in a few broad strokes. That's, as we'll see, part of the point. It takes months, 40 days, just to get instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The golden calf can be thrown together in an afternoon. But before we get there, we see the first thing. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed, the people are not walking by faith. 
people are walking by sight. They're making their decisions based on what their eyes can see. They see a mountain with a glory storm at the top. They see that Moses vanished into the glory storm 40 days ago. He's been on radio silence since. He can be missing. You can say presumed dead. You can say presumed whatever you want. The fact is, he's gone. What should trouble us is not the unreasonableness of their thinking, but it's reasonableness. This is a very understandable thing to think. Moses is gone. Nothing is happening. We need to move on with our lives. We can't sit here in the desert forever waiting for more instructions from a man who went away and said, Aaron and her are in charge. I'll be back at an unknown time. They were driven by what their eyes saw. Rather than faith in the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, they were moved by what was right in front of them. If you fall for the pleasure God, right, in terms of a risk factor for idolatry, walking by sight is way up there. You tend to worship the pleasure God, seeing the thing that gives you pleasure right there, right in front of you, that can be very tempting. If you want to worship the God of grievances and grudges, seeing the one who wronged you, the person tempts you to a fresh outburst. If you want to worship the God of wealth, the Mercedes in the parking lot can just trigger you to no end. I see that, and I want it. And of course, the biggest, the granddaddy of them all, when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. The lust of the eyes, walking by sight, makes you vulnerable to idolatry. When you're driven by what's in front of your eyes, rather than by the truth of God that you hear with your ears, you are at risk of idolatry. The second thing we see him doing is advice shopping. They gathered together against Aaron. They don't go to her. Aaron and her are jointly left in charge. Her is absent from the narrative. They go to Aaron because, well, he's willing to help. When you find yourself advice shopping, you go to somebody, an authority figure who says X, and you don't want to hear X, so you go to another authority figure, and you keep going until you find someone who will tell you why, what you want to hear, you're at risk for idolatry rather than submitting what you heard the first time, you're seeking someone who will do it your way, which is exactly what the people do in finding Aaron. The third thing they want is a God who will go before us. Come, make us gods that will go before us. They want something that will guide them in the absence of Moses. Rather than saying, all right, we have the book of the covenant We have instructions on how to live. Let's live that way right here where we are. Say, we need to go somewhere. We need a God who will lead us to a different place than this. People are looking for leadership, are looking for a guide, something to tell them what to do. Often we as Christian people, just like the world around us, will glom on to whatever seems to offer some leadership, heretical ideas, psychological ideas about fulfill yourself, live your best life now. We say things like, I will worship the golden calf today and assume that it will lead me to the promised land tomorrow. 
Not being content with God's presence and leadership is it puts you at risk for idolatry. God isn't telling me what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss. Therefore, I'll just grab something. Go with that. I need a God who will go before me and give me some leadership. Finally, we see they have a man-centered moral compass. As for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And implying, in the absence of Moses, anything goes. Moses wouldn't like this golden calf, but he's not here. While the cat's away, the mice will play. You've probably said that. We've all said it. It's a common proverb. Well, that's what Israel does. Their moral compass is not driven by the word of God that they heard from Mount Sinai a couple of months before. Their moral compass is driven by the strongest personality around them. This is a major risk for all of us. Oh, I don't do that because my boss wouldn't like it. I don't do that because my family wouldn't like it. And guys, I think we're really go this way. My wife wouldn't like that. So I don't do it. Let your wife be your moral compass. And if she's gone, hey, whatever, anything goes. Because the moral compass is out of town. If you're only faithful at work because the boss is watching, only faithful to do your homework because the teacher is breathing down your neck, only faithful to do your chores and maintain your home because your parents are watching or the neighbors are watching or the dinner guests are watching, you have that man-centered moral compass that puts you at risk for idolatry. Verse 1, in effect, tells us, check your own life for these factors. You may not be ripping off your earrings and giving them to a renegade high priest, but you and I are definitely capable of walking by sight and not by faith. We're very capable of shopping for advice and hearing only what we want to hear. We're very capable of saying, God's leadership isn't enough. I need to know now. I need guidance today. Not in His timing, but on my timing. God, I can't afford to sit around and wait any longer. My, this is ticking. My biological clock. My need to choose a career. My idea on where to move, where to work. How to get money. What church to go to. On and on and on. And then, who's become your external conscience? There's somebody in your life where when that person is gone, you're like, all right, now I can do what I want because so-and-so is no longer watching. Is there anyone whose absence would open you to sins that you aren't currently committing? These things are, these questions are thrust upon us by verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 tell us about the costs of idolatry. There's a financial cost. Aaron said, break off the golden earrings that are in your ears. Obviously, they had to give their gold to make this thing. And it sounds like all of the Israelites wore golden earrings. Men, women, sons, daughters, they all had earrings, and they all broke off their golden earrings and brought them. And in addition to family financial costs, there's a family cost to idolatry. Aaron says to the men, Take the earrings from your wives and children. That's interesting. Aaron doesn't say, men, give me your earrings. He says, get them from the rest of the family. Right? Men, turn your wives and children into a resource that can fund your idolatry. 
Take the people in your life that you should be caring for and exploit them in order to generate this idol. That's a family cost. And that is very much with us still. If you worship an idol, your family gets sacrificed to that idol. If it's the pleasure God, you're seeking your pleasure rather than caring for your family. The, The God of grievance and bitterness, and you spend your time meditating on the people who've done you wrong, again, rather than loving the ones in front of you, your family, and so on. Aaron seems to, right away, tell the men to go off the rails and do exactly what they shouldn't do. When you're paying the cost of idolatry, you don't have enough. You're living out of neediness and emptiness because... As the idol does here, it sucks in your resources and gives nothing back. The golden calf generated nothing, but it took gold, it took families to maintain it. Don't don't turn to the dark powers that promise results now. Turn to God who promises results in his time and his way. True worship of the true God is work. It's tiring, but it doesn't leave you feeling like you just got your insides sucked out by a spider. That could have made a golden spider, right? We're going to bow down to this thing that sucks our blood and never gives anything back. God always gives more than he takes. The opposite is true of idols. They take more than they give. So if you're living out of emptiness, you're probably living in idolatry. If you're living based on neediness rather than based on fullness and sufficiency in Christ, you're probably living in idolatry. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. The life of devouring neediness is not the Christian life. Instead of paying idolatry's costs, Live on God's gifts. Israel in the wilderness was living on manna every day that God sent them. But with Moses gone, they forget that God is providing for them. Just like we tend to think, oh, it's not God providing for me. That was my employer. That was Smith's. They, they worked together to get me this food. God had nothing to do with it. Right? Israel, I'm sure, got to the place where they thought, oh, the desert just naturally produces manna. Nothing too miraculous about this. We just have to go out and pick it. Forgetting everything they ever knew that no, the desert produces nothing. There is no food to be harvested in the desert in the morning. Live on God's gifts. Don't pay idolatry's costs. There's some context for idolatry. First of all, of course, where does this story occur in the near context is the instructions for building the tabernacle. And that tells us that we should regard the calf as an anti-ark, an anti-tabernacle. This calf is the opposite of all that the tabernacle was supposed to be. The tabernacle is a dwelling place for God in the midst of his people. The calf is how a false god dwells in the midst of the people. Instead of making the tabernacle, Israel is making the golden calf. To make one is to reject the other. To host the calf is to not host the true and living God. So the calf is this anti-ark 
this place where God is not. There's four major areas of contrast that I notice. There's, first of all, six chapters of instructions versus no instructions. It takes, as I said, 40 days to say how to build the tabernacle. It takes no time at all to say how to build the calf. There's no preparation, no gathering of many different types of materials, no detailed plan, no model shown on the mountain. Above all, there is no word from God in the construction of the calf. The second is the presence of God, that God is present in the tabernacle. God is not present in the calf. The calf is a God defeater, a repeller. The calf is a rush job. I don't know much about sculpting, but this narrative certainly gives the impression that Aaron made the calf in an afternoon. Now, I don't think that you can make a good sculpture in an afternoon. That seems very implausible, that everything you need to become an accomplished metal worker can just be thrown together by someone with no previous experience and that he would make a good-looking golden calf in that amount of time. It takes almost a year to do the tabernacle. It takes an afternoon to build the golden calf, which is going to provide a more long-lasting, satisfying religious center for Israel. Right? Even in worldly terms, there's no question here. And finally, we have Aaron's solo work versus the artisan team. The text is light on details about the calf to emphasize that it's the opposite of the detailed tabernacle. It's supposed to be a quick and dirty substitute for God's authorized way of living and meeting with his people. The trouble is, it's so quick and so dirty that we have to reject it. The calf has no point of contact with the living God. So if the calf is an anti-ark and anti-tabernacle, how do we counter that? Right, if an idol should be thought of as an antichrist, something that takes the place of Jesus in your life, how do you stand against that? How do you avoid that sin as a Christian? First of all, accept the incarnation. Jesus is among us. We already have our tabernacle. We don't need a substitute. Accept the gift of the Holy Spirit. Today is Pentecost Sunday when we remembered how God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. We don't need an idol to be the presence of God in our life. The house of God, the church, together, Christ, His Spirit, and His church provide all the presence of God that we need in our lives. Sure, we only meet a few hours a week, but you can be in the presence of God all the time. The Spirit lives in our hearts. Indeed, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. I think it's hard for us to believe that. But you are better off with the Spirit in your hearts and me in the pulpit than you would be without the Spirit and Jesus in the pulpit. It's a pretty incredible statement, but that's exactly what Christ said when he said, it is to your advantage that I go away. We have unbelievable resources, just as Israel in the wilderness did, but far, far more. We don't need to say, I don't know where God is. I don't know where God's representative is. I don't know where the mediator is. I can't see him. He's on the mountaintop. I should just find someone else to worship. 
No, God isn't in a new car. He's not in a Sunday morning hike. He's in church. He's in your brother's heart. He's in your heart. The other context for this calf, in the broader book of Exodus, though it does, of course, contain the Ten Commandments, the word sin is almost never mentioned. Israel complains in the wilderness a couple of times in chapters 16 and 17. And otherwise, Israel is not particularly described as sinning. But once they come out of, this is the first sin Israel commits after getting the Ten Commandments. In that sense, it's yet another rewrite of the garden scene. Adam and Eve walking with God, then turn away, eat the fruit. Israel says, God isn't providing for me. I want something that's pleasant to the eyes, desirable to lead me to the promised land. And they go after the golden calf. So ask yourself this question. What is the true God failing to provide for me today? What is God failing to provide for you? But if you have an answer for that question, say to yourself, if God is not giving this to me, I don't need it. God is not depriving any of us of something we need. Whatever it is that you think you lack, you don't need it at the price of apostasy from the living God. Israel said, we need a God to go before us. So we'll make one. Because Yahweh isn't providing. And we say that all the time. I need this pleasure. I need this relaxation. I need this opportunity to vent. I need this purchase. Retail therapy. And instead of saying, no, God has not given that to me. God hasn't given me a bank account that can sustain a trip to Maui. Therefore, I don't need it. We say, God is a bad God. He hasn't given me the spouse, the house, the car, the job, the this, the that. Then therefore, I'll take it anyway. To do that is to be like Israel and sin in the wilderness. Well, the calf gets made. Aaron receives the calf. And then we have Once they get the calf built, they start to theologize about it. They start to interpret the calf. And they make three theological statements about this animal. Hint, all three are false. The first statement that Israel announces, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, the calf is the God of the Exodus. That's the first claim. Apparently they've forgotten the plague of boils on livestock. Calf really plague his own kind. Apparently they've forgotten that the wrath of God was appeased by the blood of the lamb. Do bulls care about the blood of lambs? Right? The Passover was not accomplished by smearing grass stains on the doors of the houses. This God is not the thing that brought them out of Egypt. They knew it. But they didn't care. They willingly embraced the lie. Because that's what idolatry does. When you want the idol, you shut off your brain and say, I want this thing. Yes, a corner of me knows that 
the pleasure, buying the thing, doing the thing, running off and grabbing the thing I shouldn't have, will not work out well. I'm just going to shut off that corner of my brain and ignore it. This is my Exodus God. Yahweh is right here in the calf. The second false claim, Aaron sees where this is going. When Aaron saw it, he realized, uh-oh, right? Like big tech, if you make a solid product, you don't get many repeat customers. It takes many years before your solid product dies. So he quickly figures out a way to sell services to the calf worshipers. Something that the calf will need every day for the rest of its life. It will need sacrifices. And Aaron quickly, even more quickly than he built the calf, ooh, he throws together an altar in front of that calf and of course nominates himself as the priest who will service the altar and eat from the sacrifices. Oh, well, that was easy. No, that is his false claim. The calf is to be worshipped by sacrifice. He builds this altar before it to indicate to Israel, here's how you worship the bull calf. Go ahead and offer sacrifices. With me, of course, is the officiant. I'll make sure this thing is pleased with you. The bull is apparently cannibalistic and devouring if it accepts sacrifices of bulls and calves, just like all idols. Yeah, maybe the bull is a symbol of virility and strength, but this thing does not have the strength to protect its own kind. It's not a Chick-fil-A cow urging you to go after other animals. It allows, apparently, for the sacrifice of bulls. And to this day, idols demand sacrifice. If you live for pleasure, you have to give up work and family time and sleep and many other things to service the claims of your God. The same goes for every other idol. The autonomy God, the convenience God, to which we sacrifice our children in a rite called abortion or daycare or television, the power God or the laziness God, they all demand sacrifice. The true God, on the other hand, provides a sacrifice. He doesn't take it out of our hides. He takes it out of his own. So the calf says, worship me by sacrifice. Or at least Aaron says that about the calf. The true God says, I will provide a sacrifice whereby I am to be worshipped. The third false claim is Aaron's second invention, his brainwave. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow a feast to Yahweh. As if to indicate that somehow this calf is going to help them worship Yahweh. Now did he say that the calf is Yahweh? It's a little unclear. Uh, Some have said, based on other figurines found around the ancient Near East, oh, the calf is just kind of like the pedestal underneath the statue. and The invisible Yahweh sits on it or stands on it or something like that. That is probably not anything that Aaron was thinking at this point. But even if he were, it boils down to the same thing. They worshiped the works of their hands. They made an idol, says Psalm 106, in describing this. And it pulls no punches. This is not, or even if this is not thought of as Yahweh, but just as a visual aid so that you can worship Yahweh with this thing helping you think about who he is. That is an idol. Uh, yes, here it is. Psalm 106, 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image 
right? Not worshipped through the molded image. They didn't offer Latria to the calf, but Dulia to God in terms of the distinction that the Catholics and Orthodox make today. No, the psalm says they worship the molded image, period. Thus they change their glory into the image of a god, into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior. Therefore he said he would destroy them. To put the visual aid up front and say, this is Yahweh. Feast to him is not to worship Yahweh at all. It's incredibly clear that that's the narrator's opinion, which is God's opinion. The Greek word idol means little seen thing. God is the opposite of an idol. God is not little. He is immense. He is larger than all space, larger than all size. God is not seen. He is invisible. So God is the opposite of a little seen thing. If you can see it, it ain't God. And Israel knew that. But they chose to forget it. And to agree with Aaron, oh yes, we'll feast to Yahweh. Definitely. This thing and Yahweh are compatible. Whereas Yahweh says, no. This thing and I are not compatible. This is the anti-Yahweh, the anti-Ark, the anti-Tabernacle. My presence does not inhabit the golden bowl. Never, no way, uh-uh. The false theologizing about the golden calf reminds us to embrace true theology, the truth that God reveals himself definitively in the word and not in the image, not in the crucifix, not in the icon. Worship with visual aids is what God calls a heinous offense. Well, finally, their worship, verse 6. They rose early on the next day. They're so excited about their God. They don't want to sleep in. They bound right out of bed. They can't wait to get started on this feast to Yahweh. And they offered two kinds of things, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Fascinating that there's no sin offering. This thing doesn't have a problem with any of their behavior. It doesn't ask that they ask forgiveness. They're satisfied with burnt offerings where they dedicate themselves to it and peace offerings where they celebrate the good life that the golden calf has brought them. So they worship with no sin offerings and then with pagan revelry they rose up to play. False worship is entertainment. False worship is play. False worship is relaxation and pagan revelry. Again, what's the solution to this? To worship God in the way He commanded. Not in the way our minds cook up. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding also. If true worship is done in spirit and in truth, there's obviously no truth in this calf. Nor is the Spirit present here. Our worship should be filled with both God's Spirit, which we get through singing, and letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in us, and in truth, as we listen to that same Word of Christ. So shun the precursors to idolatry. Live on God's gifts, rather than paying idolatry's costs. 
Except the incarnation of Christ, the gift of the Spirit in the household of God, is providing all the presence of God you need. Embrace true theology. Celebrate the worship of God according to his commands. That is what God sent his son to be the sacrifice for. Jesus died so that we could say no to idols, flee idolatry, and worship the true God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would sober us with this narrative of the golden calf. Help us to see how reasonable idolatry appears to be. How easily we slip into it. How much it seems to fit with our commitments and priorities, offering us answers now, guidance now, help now, on our terms rather than on your terms. Father, we pray that you would help us to flee idolatry and youthful lusts. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our risen Savior. Amen.